Brooklyn. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Welcome to What Would Kay Say? I am your host, Kay Edwards. How is everyone doing today? How are my highly blessed and favored people? How are you doing this morning? If you woke up this morning feeling like someone other than yourself, you're still blessed and highly favored. Because, you know, sometimes we do wake up feeling like, I don't feel like myself. And I never could understand. I don't even understand when I say that phrase. You know what? I woke up. I really don't feel like myself. Do I really know what myself feels like? Sometimes I have to ask myself that. But if you weren't as productive as you wanted to be yesterday, you are blessed and highly favored. 
If you yelled at your kid, kicked the dog, yelled at your spouse, rolled your eyes at your neighbor, you know what? You're still blessed and highly favored. And you want to know why I gave all those examples? Because God calls you blessed and highly favored, not because of what you do. Because if it was what you did, if God were capable of calling us any other name but anything but pure, then he would probably use them. But because he doesn't even have the capacity to call us those things, we're always blessed and highly favored. And it's not because of what we do, but because of the love and how he feels about us. So just remember that when you're wondering, you know, have I fallen out of favor? God always looks at you and gives you favor because of the way he feels about you, not because of what you do. So, oh, housekeeping, Les, let me get that out the way. Thanks for listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, an independent listener-supported radio. Any donations will be greatly appreciated. You can donate at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. So in light of Black History Month, I want to make this announcement because it's, it's important. And I think it's important. Okay, I'm going to put it this way. It's important because when it flashed across my computer, I thought it was important. So if I thought it was important, I figured everybody else would think it's important as well, right? You might not think it's important, but when I read it, I was like, hmm. So in light of Black History Month, an American bobsledder by the name of Alana Myers Taylor. Now, anybody that's been watching the Olympics, you probably already know this, but because I haven't been watching the Olympics, that's why it struck me as being important. She won her fifth Olympic medal Saturday. Here's the important part. Making her not only the most decorated woman to ever compete in the Olympic bobsled, but also the most decorated black athlete in the history of the Winter Games. I found that significant because you really don't see too many black athletes in the Winter Games And most people, they want to make a joke about it when they make their jokes about what black people like and don't like. Oh, they don't like cold weather. Well, that's not true because I know a lot of black people that love cold weather. I had a sister, God rest her soul, that she couldn't wait till wintertime came. That was her favorite season was the wintertime. Me personally, I don't particularly like cold weather. And that's not a black or white or Asian or Latin, Latinx type of feeling. It's just a human thing. You know, some people like cold weather, some people don't, you know. But the most of the time, black people aren't in the Olympic sports in the winter is because of the training and the facilities that you have to be at to get to that level are usually out of reach for us. It's usually either too expensive or they're in obscure places where we just don't live or frequent. So we can't be a great athlete in a particular sport that takes place in the winter if we're not around those things. So that's why I thought this was so important because when I read it, I was like, "Mm mm-hmm. So we are making strides in that part of the Olympics as well. So just the way we dominate the summer games, I'm just saying. So God has placed in my spirit for this month 
to talk about the importance of what love is, right? And how we are not only affected as children on how we learn to love, but we also, the style of the way that we love also affects the way we raise our children, right? So God in this post-pandemic is taking us back to how he wanted things to be from the beginning. You know, this is what we talked about towards the end of last year, going into this year with everything that he's doing, all the topics that he had us studying. It's like he, we said he's reset everything. So God is taking everything back to the beginning before man fell, before false teachers came and started screwing up his word for their benefit to what he really wanted our lives to mean and how he wanted us to function. So this month, since it's been, you know, I deemed it the month of love because we always think about Valentine's Day when we think about February. Um, And we think about Black History Month because it is Black History Month. So God is saying, keeping in the theme of love, which, you know, he's had us on from the beginning of the month. He wants us to get it right. So I went looking for information that would let us better understand how we love and why we love the way that we do. And I feel that um, it's important for all people to have an understanding of why they do what they do so that you will know when you go to do something, it's the reason behind it, not just because it's just a whim and you just wanted to do it. So we can all learn how to love without feeling bad about love. Because some people, when they hear the word love or think about love or relationships or interacting, it makes them feel bad and they shouldn't feel bad. It makes them feel bad. It makes them feel sad. It makes them feel upset. It makes them feel angry. It makes them feel all these things where love is none of those. Love is, if you wanted to describe love, it's none of those adjectives that I just used. But when you say love, all those feelings and emotions come up sometimes in people when they hear the word love. So God wants to set the the record straight. So in my, in my, uh, how could I say? In my investigations, <laughs> I came across two authors, Milan and Kay Yurkovic. I hope I said their name right. They are the authors of How We Love and How We Love Our Children. Those are two books that they wrote. Now, Milan is an ordained minister and a pastoral counselor, while his wife Kay is a marriage and family therapist. And they were prompted to write those two books because of the problems that they had encountered within their own marriage. You know, they couldn't understand why would they, why when things were going good, they would always end up at the same place when things went bad. And it's one thing to, when things are going good and then things start to go bad. But when you keep going back to the same place, Every time something goes bad, then that's something that you need to look into to see, well, what is the issue behind that? So that's what they did. And they found that they kept going through the same patterns and cycles and they couldn't break it and they couldn't understand why is this. So they being the therapist and the minister that they are, 
decided to go back into their childhood to see what might have caused them to react to situations the way that they do as adults. So this is what we're going to talk about today. I thought it would be a good idea for us to understand why we love and react in relationships the way we do. And we're going to use the model that Milan and Kay put together in their book to get a little understanding. So they have a mixture of six love styles that exist. They say there are six love styles that exist. Now, this is not a perfect science, but it can give us some insight as to why we do what we do and the way we do it. Now, the six um, the six love styles are avoider, pleaser, vacillator, controller, victim, and the secure connector. Now, I'm going to go into each one of them. I'm going to give you a description of what they say they are, and then I'm going to give you certain uh, certain. If you have these thoughts. In your mind at one time of another or another, you might fall into that particular type of love style. Now, the first one is the avoider. The avoider comes from homes that are often low in affection, but place high value on independence and self-reliance. Avoiders grow up learning to take care of themselves, to deal with the anxiety of having so little comfort and nurturing from their parents. They have learned to restrict their feelings, and suppress their needs. As adults, avoiders can seem emotionally distant or unengaged. So you see, when I said about it's not only how we were raised, but if we take these, if we take what we felt as children and then we then mimic it when we're raising our own children, can you see how the pattern just keeps repeating, repeating, repeating? So now, if you're an avoider, no, are you an avoider? That's the question. And this will let you know if you are. If any of these statements resonate with you, you might be an avoider. I usually feel fine. And when something bad happens, I try to get over it quickly. In my family growing up, we rarely discussed personal concerns. I'm usually happiest when others are happy and don't want a lot from me. I don't really think about my own feelings and needs very often. I don't really miss my spouse or family if I'm away from them for a while. I need my space. So now if any of those that I just read to you are some things that come to your mind often, you might your style of love might be an avoider. The next style is the pleaser. Pleasers usually grow up in homes with an overly protective or angry, critical parent. Pleaser children do everything they can to be, air quote, good and avoid troubling their reactive or anxious parents. These kids don't get comfort. Rather, they spend their energy comforting, caretaking, and appeasing parents and siblings. As adults, Pleasers tend to continually monitor the moods of others around them and try to keep everyone happy. Eventually, they can become resentful, 
but really know how to express their own difficult emotions or ask for what they want. That's the pleaser. And I'm sure some of you might even hear the description of the love style that I'm giving and be like, hmm, that sounds vaguely familiar. But are you a pleaser? If any of these statements resonate with you, for most or all of my childhood, I could have been described as the good kid. I feel very upset if someone is upset or annoyed with me. So I am good at keeping peace. I seek connection and avoid rejection by anticipating and meeting others' needs. Conflict makes me uneasy, and I prefer to deal with disagreement by giving in or making up for it and quickly and moving on. I have difficulty confronting or saying no, and sometimes it makes me less than truthful. Now, if any of those statements resonated with you, then you might be a pleaser. The next style is vacillator. Now, the vacillator grew up with an unpredictable parent. Vacillators, a vacillator's needs aren't top priority. Without consistent parental affection and attention, they develop feelings of abandonment. By the time the parent feels like giving again, their child is either tired of waiting or too angry to receive. As adults, vacillators are on a quest to find the consistent love they never received as children. They idolize relationships, hoping to avoid any feelings of rejection or abandonment. Life isn't ideal, and as a result, they often feel disappointed, angry, and let down. Are you a vacillator? I feel like no one has really understood what I need. I experience internal conflict and high level and a high level of emotional stress in relationships. At times, I find myself picking a fight and I'm not sure why. I've always been especially sensitive and perceptive and can tell when others are pulling away from me. Others have said they feel like they're walking on eggshells around me. If any of those have resonated or you've heard people say that about you, you might be a vacillator, your love style. The next love style is the controller. Controllers need control to keep the vulnerable, painful feelings they experienced during childhood from surfacing in their adult lives. Having control means having protection from the overwhelming feelings of fear, humiliation, and helplessness they had to endure as kids. Anger is the one emotion that is not that is not vulnerable. So intimidation and anger are often used to stay in charge. Control may be highly rigid and more sporadic and unpredictable, but controllers rarely realize the real reason they need to be in charge. They rarely have compassion for themselves as to the suffering they endured as children and therefore minimize the impact of their childhood trauma and its effect on their adult relationships. Hmm. Are you a controller? 
No one protected me from harm when I was growing up, so I had to get tough and take care of myself. Life has taught me to either be in control or be controlled. People would probably describe me as intimidating. Anger is really is anger is really the only emotion I feel. Things need things to be done a certain way and I or oh Things that need to be done should be done a certain way or I get angry. I have few feelings about my childhood, except I'm glad it's over because I wouldn't go back. Now, if any of those statements resonated with you, then your style of love is controller. We have two more to go through. Does And I'm wondering if this resonates with anybody. If you want to call in and let me know, the number is 718. 718- Six seven three eight two zero one. Once again, the number is seven one eight six seven three eight two zero one. So now, the victim in chaotic homes. Uh, in chaotic homes, kids survive by trying to stay under the radar. They hide, appease, and learn to tolerate the intolerable. At times, they may disconnect. Not you know, not be fully present in order to lessen the pain caused by their neglect, anger, or chaotic parents. Some kids build whole imaginary worlds in their head where they can escape the pain of abuse. As adults, victims lack a sense of self-worth and are often depressed and just going through the motions. They may replicate their childhood home environment by marrying a controller and using the same coping methods they learned as kids to get along. That's the victim. Now, here's the questions. Are you a victim? Growing up, I experienced a great deal of intense anger and stress from a parent or parents. I used I'm I'm used to chaos and calm makes me anxious because something bad is always just around the corner. If I spoke up more and had stronger opinions, my spouse or significant other would be very angry. I feel like just going through the motions and I'm tired and out of energy. I often believe everything is my fault and I think if I tried harder, things would be better. If any of those thoughts ran through your mind, then your love style might be victim. Now, here's the last one. The secure connector. Secure connectors are comfortable with uh, reciprocity and balanced giving and receiving in relationships. They can describe strengths and weaknesses in themselves and others without devaluing. Good. They are good at self-reflection. Secure connectors clearly and easily communicate their feelings and needs. They resolve conflict that they modeled from growing up. So they're, so they aren't, they know they're not perfect and can apologize when they're wrong. Setting boundaries and saying no is also no problem for the secure connector. They are comfortable with new situations. They take on risk and they delay gratification. When upset, secure connectors seek help and con, and comfort from a person rather than a thing. Are you a secure connector? I have a wide range of emotions and express them appropriately. 
It is easy for me to ask for help and receive help from others when I need, when I have needs. I can say no to others even when I know it will upset them. I'm adventuresome and I know how to play and have fun. I know I am not perfect. I give my loved ones room to disagree. So, out of all of those six styles of love, did you see yourself in any of them? Now, when you, you it's not a, and it's not a negative thing. If you saw yourself, I feel that there's some of all of this in all of us, some more in um, some parts of one more than the other. But I think to be a whole human being, you do at some point in time embody some of these points in all of these six love styles that they say. And from reading it and from just thinking about myself, oh, and you can find this information, all this information on how we love, I found it on howwelove.com. And you can also take a quiz there on howwelove.com. You can take a quiz there and it'll let you know your style, what love style you fall under. So you can take the quiz, find out. But I think, I think over time, now see the test, I guess we could take the test as an adult and it would tell us where we stand now. If you haven't been put through situations as an adult, because I believe that even as a child, yes, our formative years, everything that we learn during that time, we carry over into adulthood. But I also believe that the instances and relationships that we take on when we become an adult, they mold us as well. Because I know some, well, let's just speak for myself because I don't know what everybody else is doing. But I know for myself in the beginning, if I think back to my early relationships, my early relationships, whatever style I might have fell into, probably showed up in the early relationship, like, you know, as teenager, as an early young adult. But as you get older and you've gone through various relationships, your love style changes just because of the people that you've encountered and the different things that you've learned. And if you grow as an individual, you're going to pick up different ways of dealing with relationship issues and problems. So, that's why I say it's not a perfect science. It can give you, if you're one who you feel you haven't changed much from the time you were a child, you still, because there are some people that still have the same friends, still live in the same neighborhood, still listen to the same music, still go to the same places to hang out or shop, or there are some people that are like that. So they might be a little closer in their adult life to still being the same way they were from the way they were raised as children. But if you're someone who's eclectic, who who's traveled the world, who has met different people, who have who has had interactions with different people, and just going to college, number one, to me, Everyone should get the college experience. Yes, I know college is not for everybody, but everyone should get that college experience because when you go to college, 
it's a whole nother world from when you were in high school and coming up through grade school. It's a whole nother world. First of all, the excitement is you get to pick your own classes. Nobody's telling you what classes you have to take. They tell you what classes you should take if this is what you're thinking about. But you could basically choose your own. You can go to college and pick anything you want to study. Anything you want. Now, whether it's going to do you well after you get out, that's that's another issue. But that's something you also have to think about. But it gives you the opportunity to just explore different topics that you were not able to explore coming up through grade school and high school. And to me, the college experience, when you have it, that's when you really learn how to interact with different people. Because when you go to college, that's where you really learn and are introduced to other other people, the way they live, what they think, why they think the way they think. Even professors in the classroom, you're like, well, why would they think that? Or when you learn about certain topics, it's like, well, wow, I didn't know that. You know, why did they have that understanding at that time? So I think a lot of that, when you have that experience and just the fact of you wanting to be a better individual, when you take that time, it kind of breaks you out of these little molds. But for the most part, it will give you an understanding of, hmm, there are some things there. Yeah, I still do think about or I still do respond in that manner when it comes to my love style. So that was just something I, I thought was very interesting when I read it. Because sometimes when they do these love, um, when they have these quizzes about love styles, this is the first one I've ever found that all of them, except for the secure connector, everybody came from a dysfunctional home. <laughs> and I say that as I'm laughing because I wasn't a secure connector when I got this. When I actually, when I did this test, and that's why I said we're made up of a bunch of them. When I did this test, I came up with a couple of high scores on a few of these. But when you think about it, all of them that I read, I, victim, I was, that's the only one that I didn't come up with a high score or victim. I never see myself as a victim, but a lot of like the, the, and the control line didn't come up high either. And I would think with me always saying, I like to be in control. I like to be in control. But me liking to be in control, that's not my, that's not my love style. Like in a relationship, I don't like to be in control in a relationship. But in my work life and just things that I do outside, yes, I like to be in control if, you know, if I'm at work or anything I'm doing. But in my love style, I'm not a controller. My love style, I was more like I scored high in, I wasn't really the avoider either. I scored high in, well, I can't even say high. I say high because they give you, it's a series of questions that they give you, but it's like if you score high in like, it's 15, I guess, in each category that they give you, 15 questions in each category. And if you score high on answering those, that's your high score. But I was a combination of a lot of them. Not pleaser, though. Well, sort of. I was in the pleaser category because I was described as a good kid. But I wasn't about keeping peace. That's not why I was described as a good kid. It wasn't because I wanted to keep the peace. I just 
wasn't one to get into trouble all the time. See, so you have to really, you have to look at where you fall when you take this test and then really understand and think back, you know, how your lifestyle was growing up as a child. But I just thought it was kind of cute to take it. Not that I'm saying it's the gospel, but when I say that God wants us to understand when it comes to love, when you take a test like this and you think back into your childhood, what it's really showing us is that we don't have to be a total product of. Yes, that's all we knew and coming into adulthood. Yes, that's what we bring, but we don't have to keep it. We can reshape. We can restructure we can renew our minds to become what we should be or what we should have been from the beginning. So with that, I think it's time for us to take a music break. You have been listening to What Would Kay Say here on Radio Free Brooklyn, What Brooklyn Sounds Like.
Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. You are listening to What Would Kay Say here on Radio Free Brooklyn. So it's now time for the part of the show that I like to call op-ed. And in op-ed this week, I must say, there were a number of things that I could talk about in op-ed this week. I could have talked about Russia and Ukraine, but since I'm not really into that political seesaw stuff, I'm not going to touch that. It's just bad that in this post-pandemic time that even world leaders feel that, you know, for two years I haven't been able to do anything, so let me just exercise my power and take over the country next door. But we're not going to get into that. I want to talk about things that's closer to home for us, even though that's something that we should keep our eye on, the world stage, yes. But sometimes you can't keep your eye on the world stage so much without really keeping your eye on what's happening right outside your front door. Because I encounter my front door before I encounter Putin and Ukraine, right? So once again, the violence in the city. And I don't like to keep talking about it, but I only talk about it to keep people aware of it, to just say that we need to we need to do something about it. Right. And because with all the random shootings, stabbings, all these vicious attacks, like a little boy, I just heard it on the news this morning, a little boy walking in Times Square with his mom punched in the back of the head, a four year old boy, just out of the blue, somebody just punched him in the back of his head, but his mother tackled the guy and he was with his teenage sister. And you know how teenagers are today. I'm surprised she didn't kill the man, but they tackled him and they held him till the police came. But just could you, you're walking down the street, minding your business, doing whatever, worrying about whatever, trying to live your life. And someone just randomly comes and punches your four-year-old child in the back of their head. But I say that to say, and with the woman, the Asian woman, who was followed into her building up six flights of stairs. And now see, with that, one thing I will say, women, we have to pay attention. We have to be vigilant when we're walking down the street. I don't know if she had earbuds in or something, because how did you not hear this person walking behind you? I mean, unless he was just moving real stealth. But I'm like, how did you not hear going up all those flights of stairs, not hearing someone's footsteps walking up behind you? But it's just a sad turn of events, what happened to her. And we all have to be very careful. How many times have we come in late at night? I myself used to come in late at night, coming from the Long Island Railroad, walking down. From the stop, it's like six blocks from my house. And I used to have to walk through the street late at night to get home. But I say that to say it could happen to any of us. And the fact that, and see, this is the one point I want to make. When it comes to violence, and I know a lot of times, and this is how, excuse me, this is how you have to be so careful that acts of violence are not just automatically deemed, oh, it happened because they are whatever they happen to be. This attack on this woman, it might 
have been because she was Asian? Or it could have just been because he happened to be in Chinatown and she was easy for him to get to. Because if his if he was placed in Park Slope, Bed-Stuy, St. Albans, Mount Haven, he could have done the same thing. That just seemed to be what was in his mind to do. Or it could be, oh, because she was Asian. But I say that to say, not to diminish the fact that she died, no. But I say that to say, it could have been a random act against anyone. And that's why sometimes we have to be so careful to label things racially motivated. Because when you put the term racially motivated on it, then it makes it seem like as if it can't happen to others. And some things are clearly racially motivated. But to me, random attacks, random acts of violence to me, are not racially motivated. To me, that's just people doing things to people who they happen to see at the time. Unless they say, I'm, you know, because sometimes the assailant will say, oh, you whatever, call whatever derogatory name for that ethnic group. But if that's not said, then I think a lot of times when someone is attacked, let's just keep it as this is an attack on someone in society and it needs to stop. Because then it's, then you start just concentrating on one area where it's taking place in other areas as well. Concentrate on all the areas everywhere where it's happening. So a lot of people are saying that, oh, it's because of bail reform. If it wasn't for bail reform, we wouldn't have this because they're letting people out. Well, bail reform was only supposed to be for those who were nonviolent criminals. But it seems as though it's been extended to people outside of that description because they said he had a rap sheet of multiple crimes that even just happened in the last month. And it makes me ask the question, do they give bail reform to homeless people because they know they're homeless and they're not going to where they running to? It's like, really like they're going to be a fugitive in another state. They're not going anywhere. So, you know, you're going to find them, Right. So my question is, the real question to me is, it's not about the bail reform. To me, it's about the mental illness and the homelessness. Because all of these acts that have been happening have been happening by people who are homeless, who then they later find are mentally ill. And that's what made me look into the whole mental health issue. Now, remember back in the day, They used to have these mental health facilities, right? But during the 60s and the 70s, they started closing down these mental hospitals. Then they called it deinstitutionalizing, which eliminated more than 96% of the last resort's beds that had existed in the 50s, meaning that when someone was really mentally ill, they used to put them away into these hospitals. So... Once they started closing those hospitals down, the burden then fell on county and local agencies and private hospitals to pick up this new surge of inpatient service. But after a brief expansion in the 90s, then private hospitals started shrinking their psychiatric inpatient capacities, right? The consequences of all this is that since all these other other facilities didn't pick up where 
they had the actual hospitals taking these people. And in 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 theory, it was a good idea. You wanted to give these people a chance to have a real life without being, you know, constrained. However, it was poorly implemented. They didn't do it the right way. They didn't transition, you know, from being totally into institutionalized to now going into these outpatient private practices, practices or in hospitals. So the result was patients ended up on the streets and it said that up to 50 percent of the homeless are mentally ill. So you had people that fell through the cracks or should I say they were escorted out a swinging door because once they started saying we're not funding this anymore, they just started escorting people out with their bags, tossing them on the street. And that just means that when you do things like that, all of society suffers, not just those with mental illness, but those without mental illness as well. So the real issue is not bail reform or the fact that they're held, you know, so long before they await a trial. The real issue is the mental illness and One last point I want to make about that. If the government wants to fund billions of dollars to give clean drug paraphernalia to drug users, like they have these new open spots where they're giving clean needles so that heroin addicts could just go shoot up so they don't have to keep reusing the same needles over and over and over. You could fund billions for that, but you can't fund billions to keep the people who are mentally ill either have facilities where they can go and get the help they need or keep them medicated where they're not doing whatever it is that they're doing in the street with society. We really have to think about how our tax money is being spent. Why should we be putting tax money into giving a clean needle to an addict who willingly decided to be an addict. See, I'm not saying that being an addict is not a disease. I'm not here to debate that. What I'm here to debate is if you really just take it on the surface of what it is without doing a deep dive. And that's what I'm doing right here. You have an addict who chose to be an addict because they chose to take that drug. So now you want to keep them with clean needles so that they can continue to choose to take that drug. Whereas you have someone who doesn't have a choice because mentally they don't have the capacity to control what they do. But you don't want to give them the drugs that they need to keep them calm and under a certain control so that society and them, they we, we can all live together. That's just something to think about. And that ends op-ed. Our word for the month today is transformation transformative again because we're still in February so our word is transformative and our promise for the week is coming from John 15 12 to 14 this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Now, those was Jesus's words, not my words. I didn't say you could only be my friend if I if you do what I command you. But that's our promise for the week. We need to love one another as he loved us. And if we do everything with 
as we you see, everything we've been talking about for this month has been about love. So if we keep that in the forefront, it should help us when we're making our decisions going forward in life. I see my time is growing short. I want everyone to have a blessed week. Enjoy the rest of your day. I think they're having a parade today for Chinese New Year. Enjoy it if you're going. COVID is still out there. Wear your mask. Wash your hands. Social distance. And until God brings us together again next week, peace. I will trust in you and know that you are with me forever. I'll confide in you cause you're the only answer that matters. Even in the darkness, you will be my light. Even Shaking